Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. So, so here, here are some good rules for cooking. Eat locally and sustainably. Mm-hmm. Eat seasonally. Shop at farmer's markets. Plant a garden. Conserve, compost, and recycle. Right. Cook simply. Cook together. Eat together. Mm-hmm. And remember, food is precious. Yes. Words of wisdom in the, uh, the Art of Simple Food. Thankfully, she's already concluded her book tour, so she's with us here today. Please welcome Alice Waters, founder of Chez Panisse, author of many cookbooks. She founded that in uh, 1971. Cafe 1980, lovely to see you. Aren't you glad you're not on book tour anymore? Uh, I'm so happy to be back home. You have no idea. <laughs> the, uh, I have a little story about this, this book. Um, my my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter loves to cook, imaginarily as well as in fact, and has amazing little dishes that she'll bring me on these little plates that she has. And she wanted me to read to her last night, and I was reading your book in preparation for the show. So I started reading to her from your book. <laughs> and I said, what section? I went through, you know, there's, there's meats, there's poultries, you know, vegetables, desserts. She said, I want to hear desserts. Of course, of course. <laughs> so we got through the compotes and the sherbets, and then uh, I think I looked over and she dozed off. But. <laughs> Alas, it's good for something. <laughs> no, it's good. Well, it's good for more than that. And not only that, it's a beautiful book. It reminds me of a book called The Plan of St. Gall, which is a beautiful red typography, black and white illustrations. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful book to hold and look at, as well as the ideas in it are so wonderful. For instance, what do you need in the pantry? What do you need in your... I mean, you simplify what we need. And then you go through and provide these recipes for what's in the pantry. Uh, this book uh, was written as a collaboration uh, with um, a group of friends that have all worked in the kitchens of Chez Panisse at one time or another, and all have been connected with, with children, um, either in their own family or close uh, relatives. And so we, we really tried to think about how we could take the philosophy of Chez Panisse and make it completely accessible to people, demystify. And we wanted the whole look of the book to be in, in, that, in that spirit. And so uh, Patty Curtin designed it. And uh, actually, all the illustrations were done from fruits and vegetables that she got at the market, or she picked up at Chez Penny's, or picked from her own garden. And so there's a kind of, I hope, uh, a reality about what real food looks like. And um, it uh, is all of a piece. It's very rare to have um, a, a publisher who uh, allows you to do a book from beginning to end. Usually, you write the book, and then somebody edits edits it back in New York, and maybe it's designed in God knows where, and it's printed someplace out of the country. But this book um, uh, was done completely here in the Bay Area, and uh, and and so that it it's integrated in that that sort of deep sense, and uh, I hope that it, it, it uh, uh, really 
sort of helps people think about cooking the way the way we began, and the pantry is is something that uh, is a little frightening in most people's houses. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I've been examining people's pa- pantries a lot. Do when you go to somebody's house, you just sort of walk in and say, "May I see your pantry? <laughs> Show me your pantry." <laughs> it's not quite like that, but you you know, sort of open these spice cabinets that, uh, you know, there, there are things in there that have been there for 30 and 40 years. Maybe their grandparents bought the, the cinnamon and, and some so-called oregano or thyme. And, and uh, there are amazing things in there. Uh, uh, what, was the, what was the strangest pantry item you found? <laughs> Oh, goodness. I, I don't think I want to go into that. But, I mean, it seems like... Uh, but the little bags that people carry in their freezers, you know that? It's, it's little leftovers that they're never, ever going to use. Ever, ever. And, and they're there and sort of frozen against the walls. Well, well that's, that's following your edict that f- food is precious. Um, and so there's this kind of... Yes, but that's, uh, it's also a little bit that overbuying and, okay. and not seeing how you can use those beautiful leftovers for a school lunch or uh, integrate them into the meal the next day. And that's something that we are really focused on, is, is understanding what we need to buy in quantity and what we need to buy a little bit of and what we should never uh, buy in a jar. Um, uh, there's a world of difference between a fresh herb and a dried herb. I mean, a world of difference. And for me, that's, that's uh, the herbs and the spices are what really make a recipe that may have the same kinds of ingredients in it, but entirely different from one day to the next. There's, a, there's a, uh, an item in here that I was surprised to see until I... Was, uh, until I read how you used it in recipes, uh, that a staple for your pantry should be anchovies. Oh, it's, that's an absolute... Mike, you're nodding your head. <laughs> <laughs> you have anchovies in your pantry? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, unfortunately, at the moment, but well, I agree with after it. After you hear this, you'll have anchovies in your pantry. Well, we get uh, uh, the salt-packed anchovies, and they come in a rather big jar and very often found in Italian delicatessens. And, um, you can also get fresh anchovies here and just salt them and um, um, use them. I, when, once I open the jar, I, I put it in a bag tightly sealed and keep it in the refrigerator and you can just pour a little extra salt on them so you don't have to feel compelled to, to use that whole jar once you've, once you've uh, opened it. Uh, and the anchovies are very easy to fillet. You just feel along the, the, the edge and just pull them apart and take out the bones out of the center and you just rinse them off, soak them if you want them less salty. But they taste like real ones. They don't taste like those ones that are sitting around in the, in the jar um, uh, already filleted and not very good olive oil and... Uh, uh, but they go into a remarkable number of recipes. They, they do. They're like, for me, one of those, uh, those ingredients that kind of brings out the flavor at the end. Um, and it's like, you know, lemon and vinegar and capers and, uh, but, and garlic, of course. <laughs> but 
anchovies and garlic paste. It's a beautiful thing to mix together. And I use a mortar and a pestle, and I just pound those together. And it can be a little base of a vinaigrette, or it can just be something that you just sort of throw in at the end of a pasta, a tomato pasta, or just even a plain kind of pasta with herbs in it, and you make that paste and stir it in. You're, you're proud of the mortar and pestle. You're reluctant to recommend electrical appliances in the kitchen. Well, I, I always imagined a, a cooking school. Well, there's nothing there except the mortar and the pestle. <laughs> nothing there except the mortar and pestle. And maybe, a, you know, hole a knife. In the floor, a knife. I suppose we need a knife. And we need a little fire, hole in the floor, and a couple <laughs> of coals. But I think we've been oversold what we need to do to cook. We really don't need anything except uh, a desire and some beautiful ingredients like the ones that are right downstairs in the farmer's market. This is one of the points that you consistently make is that if you have very good food, you can prepare it as simply as possible, maybe a little olive oil uh, to bring it out, a little flavor, a little seasoning of some salt or something, and then the food has its own voice. It does. I mean, it's really, um, it's really amazing. At the beginning of Chez Panisse, and that's been, God, 36 years now, at the beginning, we were looking for ingredients. I was not uh, involved in the whole sustainable farming movement at that time. I was only looking for flavor. I had gone to Europe and fallen in love with... Um, with eating. It just was a whole awakening of my senses. And when I came back, I wanted to eat like that here. But I, I, I would buy the same foods, or I thought that they were, but I couldn't get that flavor. And so it was a search to, to find those little green beans, to find that baguette, to, you know, to get the watercress. And we went out looking and ultimately ended up at the doorsteps of all the local organic farmers. And, and you have provided them trade, and they in turn have made use of that trade to grow their own businesses. And so whether they're a fishmonger or a vegetable purveyor or whatever it is, they, have, uh, they now make livings, mostly, with produce and a school of thought inspired by your philosophy, your unintentional <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. Now, it's a wonderful community that's, that is, uh, I consider my extended family of Chez Penny's, but I, uh, I'm the buyer, so that's what they need. They need the people that really support them consistently, and I found that that if I was willing to pay the money, and I'm really willing to pay the money because I'm dependent on their good products to bring people into the restaurant. And so I can't do without them, and they can't do without me. And that's sort of what binds you together as a community. But uh, I, I know that these are the people that are taking care of the land for the future for our kids. And so I feel like every donation, I, make, I feel like it's a donation. I want to pay whatever it costs. And I know that there's not a single farmer uh, 
who is making a lot of money doing this. This is a labor of love for most every farmer I know, and it's the hardest, most unpredictable kind of work. And I totally appreciate it. I'm just a picker, I'm not a gardener, and every time I go out in my little place in the backyard, I, I realize um, what, what's involved in that. And I think we all have to have an experience out there in the fields so that we can really, truly uh, treasure those people who are producing food that is nourishing for us, as well as incredibly tasty. It seems also to be a, a political choice, too. And, and, and your early work as a political organizer, in a way, has kind of come full circle, because in many ways, when people expend their dollars on a certain kind of food, uh, it's a vote for it. It's a vote against the cheapest, most mass-produced, most processed. It's a vote for a, a different way of experiencing the world uh, as much as anything. It's a vote for a whole set of values. And I, I really believe that we need to uh, bring, you know, of course I do, all children into this understanding about food. That we have to begin at the beginning and teach them. You uh, started about 10 years ago uh, the Edible Schoolyard Project and the Chez Panisse Foundation uh, to run it. And, and what is the, the current work of the, the foundation? It's quite amazing. We started at one school in Berkeley, Martin Luther King Middle School in Berkeley. And um, the idea was to really build a curriculum that was connected to an experience in the garden and the kitchen and ultimately school lunch because I believe that every child should eat at school as part of this edible education, or eco-gastronomy, as I... Eco-gastronomy? Ooh! I'm always afraid to say that word. I've been forbidden by the foundation to use that. That's okay, you can use it here. a little gastric. A little gastric. Well, you know, in England, they... People will be put off by that, but it's a very beautiful, big term uh, that um, it seems very dignified to me, and we need this subject of uh, gastronomy, eco-gastronomy. I have a PhD in eco-gastronomy. <laughs> well, it's possible to do that now. An eco-gastronomist. You know, uh, you know the, the, there is a um, university in Italy right, uh, that was started three years ago as part of the slow food movement in Palenzo, and um, they are giving people degrees in eco-gastronomy. The gastronomic sciences. So. Well, there's also, I think, sort of a. I mean, in England, the places where you uh, where you can go to get sort of slow food are called gastropubs, which is kind of a ghastly kind of name. But, <laughs> but. Well, I I think we have to um, disconnect uh, really food uh, from its life only in relationship to health. I mean, that's, that's, that's a way of thinking that's developed in America that is so um, narrow and confining, and uh, you lose the beauty and meaning of food <coughs> when you talk about it outside of uh, the beauty of agriculture and cultural traditions. There lies the beauty. So I'm hoping that we can, through education, um, 
a curriculum in the school, bring children into a whole new relationship to food. We want them to fall in love with vegetables. We want to not tell them that they have to eat these because it's good for their health. Health is the outcome of engaging in this whole process. Well, there's also an aspect of mental health, too, which comes from the eating together, that there's uh, the, the idea of you can work together in a kitchen, that you sit down and eat and talk, that that's all part of the meal. It's not just revering something on the plate. Exactly. Well, these kids at schools, and these are teenage kids, uh, they really like this course. And they may have a history class that brings them into the kitchen, and, and they may be studying Egyptian history. And they're making the food. It's a hands-on experience. And they're as hungry for the taste of the food as they are for the people who care about them, who are making this beautiful place for them to eat, uh, they don't have an opportunity to sit at the table anymore. Everybody's too busy, you know, just, you know, running from one. Even It doesn't matter whether the families are wealthy or not. They're all running from one thing to another. And with one and two people divorced uh, in this country, kids are falling between the two houses. So... We need something in the schools that is really uh, nourishing in all ways. And just as you said, they like this. They like to wash dishes. They like to sweep the floor. They like to eat their vegetables. They like to eat them because they grew them themselves. And they learned how to cook them, so they have a kind of pride in it. And then they offer them to their friends. And, and this is a, a, a source of great... Uh, um, in a, uh, accomplishment. Is there a, a, a restaurant that you would have liked to have opened but didn't for one reason or another? <laughs> well, we were just talking about that before uh, uh, the program began. Um, I almost opened a creperie and, uh, on Telegraph, uh, just a little bit off Telegraph Avenue. Recently? Uh, no, no, 37 years ago. I wasn't having <laughs> this thing. And I... Uh, because I loved making those Brittany-style crepes and, and drinking the cider. Brittany, of course, I found out when I tried to import it that it actually was alcoholic. I, thought, I was wondering why I was falling by the roadside <laughs> after, after lunch. But uh, <laughs> I thought it was just that I was kind of a happy eater and had a dozen oysters, a couple of crepes, a little cider. Uh, but... Um, I had a business friend, one bi friend in business at that time, and he said, well, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to make any money if you want people to hang out here. And they're only paying, you know, a dollar or so for a crap. You know, uh, I th this, this isn't going to work. I think you need a bigger place. And so I abandoned that idea and opened Chez Panisse. But it was, um, I, I, I did love that. The, uh, the idea of those street corner crepe stands. And I've always thought when, when a little while, I might have one out in front of Chez Penny's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, selling violets and buckwheat crepes. So w would you, I mean, in, the, in, your, in your heart of hearts, just really love to just have a little stand like that and, and talk with whoever comes up and gets them and make them with whatever ingredients you found that morning? 
Have you gotten too unsimple? <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's always a fantasy of mine. I was just down in Mexico for the Congress of Slow Food down there, and we were in Puebla. And I went into the market in Puebla, and there were these stands, these little charcoal burners with a comal on the top, and people were just making the blue corn tortillas and putting a little string cheese and some chilies and rolling them up. And you just take them in a, in a little piece of paper and, and eat them right there by the woman who was, who was producing them. And I, I love the immediacy of that. That's, for me, fast, slow food. <laughs> That's what I think of it. I mean, you just know that she brought all the ingredients are from right there. You just know that that's something that is, uh, you know, very handmade and hand done. And that's what's important about this book, really, is, is that um, it, it would be any old cookbook, really, maybe simpler recipes, but you, there are millions of cookbooks out there with recipes in them. But what's important is this philosophy that you read at the beginning, that if you buy from the right people, the people who really care about your nourishment, you buy foods that are pure. Um, that's what, and food that's in season, that's ripe. You know, I'm just loving persimmons right now. Just loving persimmons. I can't get enough of them. And I found a little tiny native, uh, it's a, a, apparently an American persimmon that, that, that a lot of, uh, countries have taken the American persimmon and uh, may have other hybrids that come from that. But I had never had a pr little persimmon like this uh, until this year. It was completely sweetened and, and a soft um, skin on it and a deep kind of orange red almost interior. The best persimmon I've ever had. But it's, it's ingredients like that that just kind of wake you up and, and they're an endless variety of them. When you start looking, it's amazing. And in so every corner of this country. So at, even at this point in your career, you're still discovering new foods here in the land. It, that's, the, that's the pleasure of, of, of eco-gastronomy, <laughs> <laughs> of the botany of eco-gastronomy. I mean, I, I just am thrilled to to go to these little corners. I was just in Oxford, Mississippi, and I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and eating things that that I've never eaten before. My turkey came from Louisville, Kentucky, a heritage breed too. Oh, did you have one of those? Oh, just a beautiful one. There are, they, they've got they, uh, there were some pictures of them, uh, and they they look extraordinary. I mean, you can see the connection between birds and dinosaurs in some ways. I mean, <laughs> but but. I was I was I was really struck that that for 50 years we've been eating turkey in this country that was designed totally for this holiday and 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 bred uh, sort of the turkiness bred out of it in a way. Well, but as you say, that when you make a stock out of the turkey bones, it 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 it, it, it has this wild, beautiful, deep taste to it. It's fantastic, really, and uh, you realize that that. That, that is, in fact, uh, the flavor of these birds, and the dark meat is so um, uh, delicious. It's just you have to learn how to cook, again, a turkey that, um, 
that has that dark meat that might be a little tougher because these birds have been out running around in the field. And, but once you learn how to do it, it's like grass-fed beef. Um, you, uh, you know. But don't you miss that little pop-up thermometer? No. <laughs> I don't know how they bred that into the turkey in some way. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I uh, know. I know it's technology. Well, I don't know ev everything from the the, the salads to the uh, lemon curd and the one two three four cake here. I I think it was the lemon curd that that really and 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 no 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 I think it was the baked. She loved the baked peaches and she loved running her little finger along the line to sort of get the quantities. <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a, a wonderful book and I've enjoyed many uh, wonderful meals in in your restaurants over the years and it's a. Pleasure that you uh, came in today, and I'm glad your book tour is done and you don't have anything more to do with it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alice Waters, thank you very much. The Art of Simple Food. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.